returning to the program is one of our all-time favorites. I think he actually holds the record for the most number of appearances on this program, and that would be our old pal, Sean Minton. Still, even after all this time off, I still hold the record? I do believe you hold the record, still. Because I count. Every week I get on the website and I check and make sure if anybody surpassed me. Like Barry Bonds, every time you appear, <laughs> it's a new record. And it's a home run. <laughs> Yeah, that's what I was thinking. For those new to the program who are unaware of uh, Mr. Minton's distinguishing credentials, he was a longtime uh, coverer and broadcaster from the Pacific Northwest of God. I don't know how many teams up there. You covered everybody, didn't you? There were 64 teams in the Pacific Northwest last time I checked, including the <laughs> National Checkers Champions. So I covered them as well. All right. Well, that's okay. So that, that there you have it, folks. If you... You've probably heard him before, and if you hadn't, go to our archives. We have like 300 shows plus on the archives. And if you check 250 of them. (laughs) (laughs) We actually don't talk about sports very much because, you know, it's just one of those subjects that's important to people. It's part of public affairs. It's part of public life, and uh, it does... uh, impinge upon all our areas of human endeavor i think especially now with the way with what's going on in our society and with the economy i think you know it's always been an escape and i think more so than ever i think more people are watching sports i don't think more people are attending sports attendance is down almost across the board but i think as an escape with the high definition televisions and all the fancy things they can do with the graphics now i think you know it's become even more important to people yeah, actually, I was, we're, you and I were watching a game not very long ago, and I noticed in the screen they got these fancy things there. They tell you it's you're third just down, see, four yards. You're just seeing those for the first time? Well, no. I the last time you watched a football game? I've been, I've been well. For, Please don't say Newt Rockney. I'll address, that, I'll address that one momentarily. But what do you think about all those graphics? Isn't that a little too much? No, I don't think it is. I, I love to be absolutely inundated with way too much information. If, if someone is not smart enough to look at a first down marker and say, okay, they're at the 33, if I had 10 to that, I think that, 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 that 43. So I, I just think it's something that the networks have done to, to try to bring in more women and more uh, fringe people that, although football is not that complicated, I think they're trying to bring in as many non-sports fans as possible. And they really have to spoon feed them that information because, again, some people simply cannot count to 10 or one, two, three, four when it comes to downs. Well, there you have it. I uh, weaned myself off of being a football fan for many, many years. I used to watch the Niners pretty much every weekend. And mm-hmm. pretty much pointed out, you know, you're wasting an awful lot of perfectly good time when you could be doing fun things in the fall. And I was convinced by the argument. Of course, the Niners were really crappy by then, so it made it an easier decision. The games are getting longer. They are becoming more tedious. And teams, you know, one of the things... So it isn't just me. No, it's not. And one of the things that really has irked me a a lot is, uh, especially towards the end of any sporting event, even if, uh, say, in football, a team's down by three touchdowns and there's a minute and a half left, the coach of the losing team will still use all three of their timeouts. They'll still challenge every call, especially at the end of an NBA game. About the last two minutes is is about (laughs) as excruciating... As you can imagine, it just drags and drags and drags. It's yeah. Almost painful to watch. Well, I don't consider basketball a sport anyway, so that's <laughs> that eliminates any almost, almost any possibility of watching a basketball game. Well, especially in this town. <laughs> <laughs> but I was watching a football game uh, a few days back, and, you know, I was watching my alma mater, the UC Davis Cal Aggies, going up in what's become the Causeway Classic against... Sacramento State, and I was disturbed by by what I saw. In what way? Well, with about 
I don't know, say three minutes left on the clock. Davis is driving down the field. They're in Sac State territory. And anyway, uh, the wide receiver, Chris Carter, I guess, makes a spectacular catch, brings both feet down on the field, gets creamed and knocked out of the field of play, but he holds on to the ball. They declare it not a catch. And and they're they're doing it on instant replay. And the the guys in the booth are going, that's a catch. You know, that's they're muffing the play. And I thought to myself, this is one of those game-breaking things where with three minutes to go deep in the, you know, deep in their territory, if they have to punt and not turn the ball over, they may lose this game because of this call, and they did. Sac State drove down the field, scored with 20 seconds to go, and it's kind of disturbing when a bad call turns the whole game around. Well, there's two things that should have occurred there. One, the, the, uh, the coach can throw the red flag, and they can have that play reviewed if it's too close. Even in Division One, even in college? Oh, absolutely. They do it all the time in college. And the other thing that will happen is the official the official can call for a review as well. So if it's really that close, I'm well, surprised. Well, I don't, I don't understand why. I, don't, I think the coach, uh, the coach in the silence was complaining. Right. Now the, it, now, the only other thing, I didn't see or hear the game. They only get a certain, a certain number of times that they can challenge a call. Um, and if they challenge a call and it's wrong, they get assessed a timeout. So, uh, but I mean, if you're talking about something where the game is actually on the line, I would be surprised then if. Uh, well, they were up by six with three minutes okay. to go okay. in the de- in the defenders' territory. The okay. game wasn't hinging on it, but it wound up turning the entire game around. Yeah, well, that that's a coach's decision, or again, it's an official's decision. If there's less than two minutes to go in a game, a coach cannot challenge. Only an official can challenge. So, oh, I, you know, not, depending I'm... on the time, that that screws up a lot of things too. Because if a coach can't call a can't call for a challenge there's two minutes left and the officials deem it you know what i saw it no need to challenge it then there's absolutely nothing the coach can do well i should have been paying better attention this would be a more coherent discussion if i had been but the fault is mine it but. is because well it is completely yours because <laughs> but a lot of these changes have just come about in probably the last three or four years because of the technologies that they have now to be able to see all the stuff very clearly i don't know the last time you watched an nfl game but they have these cameras now that are literally, literally, you know, held together by, uh, by. I'm yeah, assuming yeah. some type of a at the top of the metal. field. And yeah, they, but they I mean, you literally, the that's actually they, a wonderful perspective. They literally could get yeah. inside the huddle if they wanted to. It's, yeah. it's really actually kind of neat. It is kind of astounding. This a much godlike view. view of the field. A godlike view. That's an excellent <laughs> way to put it. But then when you're looking at some of these challenges, because I think what some people don't realize is when when a call is challenged. The people at, at home are watching the exact same replays that the replay officials are watching up in the booth. And that yeah. makes it kind of cool, too, because mm-hmm. a lot of times even the announcers will say, uh, you know, he was clearly out of bounds. There's absolutely no way that the official is going to say that was good. And then they go down to the field and the official says, yes, it was a catch. Hmm. Even though we're all seeing the same thing, yeah. someone sees it a little bit different and that's what happens. Well, I don't quite understand that myself. But well, it's think, it's just uh, the eye of the beholder. I, I guess. guess so. I guess Maybe that's perhaps a classic... the eye of God, not as good as we all thought. <laughs> well, uh, after being angry and watching that game, it turned out that the big game was on Cal Stanford, and then mm-hmm. uh, I was, you know, I was just kind of, I was kind of thinking the UC got rooked, so I was, I was rooting for Cal, and they, mm-hmm. they prevailed and caused kind of some consternation in the Pac-10 because the USC lost, and, and so that meant that it comes down to the Oregon teams. That's kind of something the you don't Civil see too War often. The Civil War next weekend, for anybody who gives a rip about Oregon football, <laughs> the first time ever the winner of the Oregon—I mean, they've each gone to the Rose Bowl, but this will be the only time in the history of the rivalry, which is one of the longest rivalries in college football, right. where whoever wins this will determine who goes to the Rose Bowl. Now, it's in Eugene— and the way the Ducks have been playing lately, I'd, you know, I'd be surprised if they lost. But 
for the first time. You know, I went to Washington State, and I can only recall one time in my history up there where the Huskies and the Cougars played, and the winner was to go to the Rose Bowl, and we actually happened to win that game. But hmm. it does not happen very, very much with the Northwest schools. For the last seven years, USC has won the Pac-10 crown and has smoked everybody. So this is kind of a kind of a weird year for the Pac-10. Well, since I think I mentioned the show before, back in medical school days, my my girlfriend was an SC Trojan, and I went to some of those games, and I concluded that those people are nuts. <laughs> you know, what a lot of people don't realize about about the Coliseum is it's in like the worst oh, part of Los Angeles. God, yes, and that you know you once you leave the game, you kind of leave. It well, as is the campus. Yes. Well, the, also, I mean, yeah. Weren't you and I having that discussion where it's okay to be a football player on the USC campus, but if you're anybody else, you're going to get the crap beat out of you? Well, that was not me. That was not you? But I like that topic, so why don't we go with that? Okay. How does that happen? <laughs> just be, Well, I mean, I, don't, I, didn't, I, I, I visit there frequently for work, but I yeah. guess from what I understand, it's just a, a terrible, terrible place to, to play a football game. Also, it was funny that I noticed that um, they'd taken a, a page out of the, uh, I think, the USC playbook because my... My uh, blonde-haired uh, uh, sorority girl, girlfriend who, you know, uh, looks so so upper-class Orange County type, you know, uh, <laughs> would get out there and scream, F-U-C-L-A. Yes. She would spell that out loudly again and again throughout the game and would get a lot of looks from all these, you know, society matrons who were SC graduates from the 30s and looked back at her sort of down their nose, but she just went with it. And I noticed that it... That Sac State picked up on that. They've got F U C Davis. Very mature. For yeah, those, for those college students. You know, the other interesting thing that you didn't mention about about your ex girlfriend's alma mater was the the game a couple of weeks ago with Stanford. I don't know if you saw that, but Stanford and and SC usually when they play, you know, Stanford gets hammered. And this year is a down year for USC and. Stanford was up by t- by 27 points mm-hmm. with six minutes to go, and they went for two after a touchdown. <laughs> and when the wow. game when the game was over, um, Jim Harbaugh, the coach of, of Stanford, got together with Pete Carroll, and of course there are microphones and everything in the center of the field. And Pete Carroll goes, "Is everything okay? Like, why did you do that to me?" And everybody knew it's because, well, trust me, as a guy who went to Washington State, uh, USC would. Uh, would not hesitate to pour 50 or 60 on us. And I thought it was I, I know, nice I know. to see some sweet revenge. This is so disgusting when these teams yep. run up 65 to yep. nothing scores to help yep. themselves in the in the rankings. It's just a down year for them. But, you know, I'm sure next year they'll be just fine. They get the best players from all of California, the ones who couldn't get into a normal school, end up, you know, going to SC. And that's how they get the players they get. I can't resist the, the joke we used about a couple months ago was they really cracked down at SC now. That they will not award you an athletic letter unless you can identify the letter. (laughs) That's the reputation they have, which makes the Stanford thing all that more impressive. The fact that they're eight and four now and with the academic standards that you need to get into Stanford. I mean, it's pretty Well, that's what I used to tell my my girlfriend back in the Ed C. days. I'd say, you know, UC Davis doesn't have a really distinguished team, but they are operating a significant disadvantage in that all the players are able to read and write. (laughs) So, you know. Smaller pool to choose from. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's a tough situation for schools like that. It's a tough situation for schools, say, in the middle of wheat country as well, <laughs> where we end up getting... You know what happens at my school a lot is they used to go out and they get all the JC transfers, the guys that uh, couldn't get into a four-year school to start, so they went to the JC, and they were the ones that usually had the, 
the criminal records and <laughs> things like that. And so we'd have a year or two where it'd be really good. And then they get sent off to prison and we bring the next batch in. So there you go. Well, you know, there's a topic I want to talk about. You and I, I think, speculated about talking about this, but it's so radioactive that we need to back into it. Let's, let's do it in the following fashion. I saw part of this, and I think you saw part of this. There was a documentary on ESPN a, a week or two ago titled The Legend of Jimmy the Greek. Mm-hmm. And, and Jimmy the Greek's interesting story, uh, first of all, for how this guy who was a Las Vegas odds maker basically took betting on games. To not, not only was it so mainstream, that he was on the network television talking about right. football games. Right. But the one thing, and I saw that documentary too, and I thought, you know what I thought was the most interesting thing is his relationship with Phyllis George, who was the, uh, one of the female, uh, the only female on that, on that pregame show. And for people that don't go back into the 70s, you know, it was, it was uh, herself and it was Brent Musburger and Herb Cross. And then Jimmy the Greek was kind of the, the guy who did the odds. And, and the way he was brought up, he did not have a lot of respect for women. <laughs> and the fact that, that this girl who was a former beauty queen was on, you know, on talking about football really rubbed him the wrong way. And they never, ever got along. I, I mean, that's, I mean, besides his troubled life and yeah. something you're going to bring up here in a yeah. second, I found that really interesting that he just, you know, he just thought there's no place for a woman on this show. They sat him on opposite ends of the <laughs> of the studio. And eventually what happened is Jimmy the Greek would actually end up taping his segment and they play it later because those two just couldn't be in the same room together. Wow. Unbelievable. Well, I just think it's very weird that, you know, uh, that the idea of, you know, what the line is on the game is in every paper. I mean, it's just it's so accepted that right. the betting on the game is is an integral part of the of the, the whole sports scene. Yeah. Now, when he was in Vegas and doing his thing, he did a lot of betting. What they would not let him do on the CBS show, there was no line. If you'll recall, he would uh, there'd be a little check box. It wasn't super high tech back then, mm-hmm. but he'd have both teams, and then he'd have you know he'd give the nod to this team on offense, this team for deep. He could never say the line. All he could say was. I think Philadelphia is going to beat Dallas today, but he, they would never let him say, by five and a half. They would never let him do anything like that. Wow. I, yeah. I, I don't recall it that way. But yeah, they I would not let you. him do that because that was, even though everybody and their sister knows <laughs> that the reason that we have football and sports is so we can bet on them, <laughs> CBS didn't want to quite take it to that extreme. Well, Jimmy came to a bad end uh, his in his career, <laughs> and that's what I think everybody remembers him for. But uh, I want to talk about that because it, it is a topic that, well, as, as we speak about this, I have a book titled Taboo, Why Black Athletes Dominate Sports and Why We're Afraid to Talk About It by John Enteen. And a very interesting read, quite provocative, and it talks a little bit about what happened to Jimmy the Greek. Mm-hmm. He, I believe what happened is he was out to dinner one evening, and it was, it was I think it was Martin Luther King Day, <laughs> and they some some TV station just... When, you know, this was completely unrehearsed, and they just walked up to him while he was eating. They said, uh, you know, Mr. Snyder, can we ask you a few questions? And, of course, they asked him that, that, the question about— Well, to quote from John Entine— Thank you. A tipsy Snyder <laughs> offhandedly mused that slave owners had bred blacks to produce the best physical specimens, which he yeah. believed had contributed to black success— in sports Mm -hmm. and that did not go over yeah and i mean after he did that the funny thing about that is first of all he didn't think he'd said anything wrong and then the next day when the the president of cbs sports called him and uh had heard about what happened he's like he still did not 
he didn't understand the ramifications of what he said. He just wasn't wired that way. And it wasn't until they called him a day or two later and said, you know, that the firestorm from this is just too much. We got to let you go. And then he just started begging for his job back. Right. And they said, absolutely not. He tried to approach some other networks. They said, absolutely not. Well, to go back to Entine, I can't resist it because he said, well, what did Snyder say that cost him his job, his reputation, ultimately his health? Consider the following. He lists three quotes. On the plantation, a strong black man was mated with a strong black woman. Blacks were simply bred for physical qualities. Quote number one. Quote number two. The Negro was brought to this country as a physical specimen, a physical thing to work the land. And three. Think of what the African slaves were forced to endure in this country merely to survive. Black athletes are their descendants. Those respective remarks were from Calvin Hill, Yale graduate, Dallas Cowboy All-Star. Lee Evans, world record holder at the 400 meters. And finally, African-American Bernie Casey, star for the 49ers. So these guys are all black guys. They say this. Nobody bats an eyelash. But Jimmy the Greek, a white guy, says it, and he goes down in flames. Well, I mean, there's a couple of really obvious reasons for that. One is, at that time, you know, he was at the peak of his career. And it's not a black athlete making a comment about another black athlete or about race. It was... Again, when this, even though he was doing his CBS show, he was still setting lines in Vegas. He was still betting in Vegas, and he was a pretty big deal. So for him to come out and say it, I guess today— It's hard to avoid coming to the conclusion that there's a little bit of reverse racism involved in this. Yeah. I mean, if you're a Louis Farrakhan <laughs> and, and somebody asks about you know the, the, the Million Man March, and he says we need a National Day of Atonement, <laughs> and he said that uh, for the black men of America— I don't know if I've got it right. Somebody asked him why that was, and he said, well, they've got to atone because who do you think is committing all the robberies, rapes, and murders in this country? And it was like, wow. I mean, he's referring to black people that way. Uh, uh, Jesse Jackson once said famously, we walk down the street of an American city at night, and there's some youth behind him. He turns around and looks. He feels better if it's white kids. It's like, again, I mean, you can say these things if you're black, and it's it's just taken it, you know, as like, well, he's making a, a, a... a trenchant remark, but if you're white, it's it's a career breaker. We could get you know you could spend uh, this show and the, your remaining your remaining shows till the end of time talking about why it is that it's okay for uh, for me to make a comment about a white person the second you make a comment about a black person, whether it's true, false, whatever. You are we're also so afraid of the racist word. That nobody will ever, and, and it's, you know, with CNN, MSNBC, all these things, the second you say something true or not true, they pick up on it and you are just absolutely lambasted. I mean, seriously, even just between you, me, and the people listening, I don't want to touch it. Well, I, I feel the kind of the same way. I mean, this is a very, this is a radioactive topic. It is. And and Antine's written an entire book about this topic, you know, why black, the subtitle, Why Black Athletes Dominate Sports and Why We're Afraid to Talk About It. We're looking at the NFL earlier this evening, and it's, you know, it's it must be 70% black? Yeah, probably at least that. And, you know, one person that you, um, you didn't bring up is Rush Limbaugh, who, I don't know if people remember this, but about right, three years right. ago had a... Very short stint on Monday on Monday Night Football. Yes, he did. It was his first or second game, and he made a comment about Donovan McNabb and, and made some comments about black quarterbacks. He's gone the next week. I mean, then we're talking about Rush Limbaugh here. So you know it's a super sensitive subject because, well, again— Well, the, the, the trouble with what, what, what Rush Limbaugh said was like, 
everything else Rush Limbaugh said. He pulled it out of his butt. <laughs> had no basis in reality. We talked about Donovan McNabb being really, uh, uh, really overrated. When they went to attack Limbaugh, they immediately started pulling out his statistics, going, what are you talking about? Look at his stats. And, of course, he was, he was wrong. But it just, I mean, it just goes to show how sensitive, I mean, you, you, cannot, you cannot even broach that subject, especially uh, when you're in the national stage like that. It's just, it's just something you cannot touch. You were a sportscaster whose job it was to cover sports, you know, every, on every day of the week. And, yep. and, and I guess that, I guess that I, you experienced that probably, I imagine, firsthand. Absolutely. And in fact, it was interesting because when I was when I was in Portland, that was um, when the trailblazers were known as the jailblazers because they had (laughs) I mean, they had all these guys. They had Isaiah Ryder and and these guys who were just constantly getting into trouble. And yet, you know, I I got a call one night from a a prosecutor said, hey, you know, we just busted Isaiah Ryder for smoking pot and he's in jail right now. And of course, you know, you want to go on and kind of break that. But you're almost afraid to. To, to, to say something like that because oh why you talk you know why are you bringing him up right. versus anybody right. else and I mean you could have the best story in the world but we always especially because these guys were always getting in trouble so you're always thinking oh my god you know I'm, I'm talking about this guy again getting <laughs> yeah. into trouble you know I wasn't talking about um, you know I'm trying to think uh, Chris Chris Dudley who was a a white center on the team who you know, did a lot of charity work and he had diabetes and he did a lot of stuff with, you know, you know, he's doing all these great things. But what am I talking about? I'm talking about the black guys on the team that were going to jail all the time. And after a while, it did register in my head. You better shut up. You know, you're, you're going down a slippery path, even though I'm just reporting what I'm hearing. Right. It sounds like how can you talking about this, but you're not talking about this. But but flipping it around, I mean, uh, the excellence of many of the black athletes is 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 astonishing. If you talk like about Olympic sprinters. I, I forget the stat out of this book, but it's like if you want to go down the list to find who's, someone who's not African, who's a frontline like hundred meter type sprinter, you're, you're down like like I think the high the, the highest white time is like like two hundredth <laughs> on the all time list or something. But it's something it's something absolutely astonishing. Yeah, I don't know what to tell you about that. It's just um... well, just that I'm looking at I'm looking at the Economist and they're talking about how you know sprinters are different from other people. Recent article and and they go through the. The anatomy, and there are certain inherent anatomic advantages. There are differences between the races in, in these areas. It would stand to reason that this would give you a selective advantage or disadvantage, and yeah. yet nobody's going to talk about it. Well, there's that. You know, there's there's all kinds of methodologies. Well, luckily, that- we have an easy way out of all this, this <laughs> sociologic discussion. We just refer people to the book, Taboo, by John Antine, and I think that uh, it covers the topic real well. But again, Hard to come to any conclusions in the end. He just sort of explains that's the way it is, and that's the way it's going to probably be for a while in America. Amen. Subject closed. At least for now. Sean, it's always a pleasure to have you back on here, and, uh, you know, let's have another record-breaking appearance sometime soon. I'm looking forward to it. That would be 357. Something like that. Maybe after the maybe after this college football fiasco goes through the usual deciding of who's supposed to be the winner, we can uh, have you make fun of that like we did last year. Or we could talk about how nobody can get a ticket for the Winter Olympics. Oh, I like that. Okay, that's that's topic A. January 2010. He'll be back. <laughs> Sean, always pleasure. Thank you, Doug.